Okay, good morning again, everyone. And, uh, and wonderful to see you all here. And it's a, it's a real joy and a real blessing to be able to bring the Word of God to you and to um, continue on in this series. And it's a, and it's a wonderful series. Uh, and, I, and I love it. I love talking about the coming of the Lord. And I love knowing that it, it can be at any moment. I love knowing that, um, that the Lord can come for His church at any time. And I've, and I've sort of said before that uh, there's, I don't think there's a problem that anybody has that the rapture wouldn't fix. Um, you know, it certainly solves so many uh, potential issues. And it's, a, and it's a wonderful joy. The title of this morning's message is The Mind That Knows The Lord Is At Hand. The Mind That Knows The Lord Is At Hand. And, and we see that clearly presented for us within that Philippians passage. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of subtleties with regards to the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see some overt passages in the Bible, but some are very subtle. Little, little subtle references to the coming of the Lord. The Lord is at hand is one of them. The Lord is at hand. James speaks about the judges at the door, right? So we, we see that there's so many different little references with regards to it. But one of the things that is very curious and very important to be able to keep in mind are the characteristics that are presented within the Scriptures that give us an understanding on how people should be responding, what their natural state should be feeling like with respect to the knowledge of the coming of the Lord. It's completely different to those who may indeed be here for the time of Jacob's trouble, from that day of wrath that's going to be coming upon the world. Completely different. Those who know that the Lord is near, there is a rejoicing and a joy respecting it. And that's what we see clearly presented within the Scriptures. The frequency of joy related to that event as the natural accompaniment of a recognition that the Lord is coming any moment is something that we see continually within the Scriptures, which is a real blessing and a real joy to see. Let's open a word of prayer and we'll come to the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we do in every way, Father, give you thanks and praise. We thank you for the knowledge of the Word of the living God. We thank you, dear Father, and we are greatly encouraged to know that you are coming and that you are coming imminently at any time and for your church. Your glorious appearing, dear Lord, is something that is our blessed hope and something that we are looking forward to. And we rejoice and we glorify you in it. I pray, dear Father, you would bless us through this and, uh, and bless this sermon this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things we usually find. Number one is a commandment towards a certain manner of attitude, right? We see that, and we see that here in the first element. The first point this morning is rejoice and be self-controlled. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice and be self-controlled. The Lord is at hand. Uh, verse 4 in our text in Philippians chapter 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. One respecting an attitude, the other respecting a behaviour. Rejoice in the Lord always, but also let your moderation be known unto all men. In other words, be self-controlled, be gentle, be temperate. 
Do not have extremes of, of emotions and, or anything like that. Be temperate in your behaviour. These two verses are not accidentally interlinked either because we see rejoicing in the Lord always linked in wonderfully to the Lord is at hand in the fifth verse. And that's not there for an accident. I want you to think for a moment about our lives today compared to what it was, how different our lives are now that we're saved. We're born again. We know Christ. We know that we have made peace with God through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We have a hope of everlasting life and of eternal life, and that itself is a wonderful joy. That alone is more than enough for us to be able to rejoice in. You know, when I knew and I discovered that I was actually saved, I was so overwhelmed with joy with regards to it. But mind you, it was five years after I was born again. So I didn't know that I was saved. I didn't know that I was actually born again. I, was, I knew when it happened, I could, I could pinpoint you know, exactly where I was and I knew the experience that I had at that time, but I didn't know what that meant. There was no interpreter of it, you know. And it wasn't until reading the Word of God that I discovered that I was born again and I rejoiced and I glorified God and I was absolutely overwhelmed. But that's not the rejoicing that Paul's referring to here. He's referring to that as part of our natural course of life and we should be. But it's one that also acknowledges that the Lord is at hand. He is there. He's ever-present. He's right at the door. But what a blessing it is to know that you've made peace with God. That is that first point. The first part of it is knowing that you have made peace with God. You can't rejoice in the knowledge that the Lord's going to be coming until you have that part firmly entrenched. Have a look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 5. Everybody's still relatively comfortable? Let me know if you want me to... Or feel free if you're freezing cold to just go over and turn the heater on. I can only tell because my toes are cold but the rest of me is really warm. Romans chapter 5. Romans has got an incredible sequence through it. We see it in Romans chapter 1 of the depravity and the downfall, the ruin of man. We see chapter 2 speaking about all men and chapter 3 referring to the Jews themselves. Chapter 4, we have the gospel presented within it that you can know Christ and be righteous as Abraham was. And chapter 5 now begins with that verse, therefore, the word therefore being justified by faith in the first verse. Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. We rejoice in the Lord, and it's the first and foremost reason behind it, is because we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Paul speaks more to this. He speaks of rejoicing always, always rejoicing. Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Is it possible? Is it possible to rejoice in the Lord always? 
we think about the troubles that we have in this life and we know that we've got troubles in this life because Jesus actually speaks about in this life, in this world, you will have tribulation. But then he encourages us by telling us that, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, he says. So we know that we're going to have troubles in this life, but can we also possibly be of good cheer while still going through these troubles within this life? He says in the world we're going to have tribulation. What's really incredible with this is there are those who think that, that these references to tribulation can also equate to what we speak about as the great tribulation, that day of wrath, the day of vengeance of our God, the time of Jacob's trouble, yes, that day. And they think that that can also refer to that. Well, no, that day is a unique day. That time that, time that the Bible speaks about is unique in history. There was never a day like it before and there was never going to be a day like it afterwards. But Jesus here speaks about an, your everyday trouble, your everyday tribulation, big of good cheer. That's not what he says in Matthew 24 when he's actually speaking about that day of vengeance. He says, flee, run out of your houses, go to the hills, you know. Don't even go downstairs to get stuff out of your house, just run, get out of the place, you know. And then he watches, he speaks, watch for this and watch for that and be careful for this. This is what's going to happen to you and that's what's going to happen to you. There's no be of good cheer in that passage and in that section within Matthew 24, 25, Luke 21 and Mark 13. You don't see that there. But yet here we are to be of good cheer. Romans 5 tells us we glory in tribulations also, knowing the tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Well, that's interesting. You see, the troubles that we have in this life are meant to engender within us patience. They have a work that's being done within us. The, the tribulations and the troubles that are in this life that we're having at the moment, the day-to-day -day problems that we go through, are meant to have their ultimate goal as hope and experience within our lives. But we don't see that in the day of wrath. That, that day is a day that its ultimate culmination is judgment. There's, there's nothing that you're going to learn from that day that's a day of the end. That's a day when God has completed his grace period and time of mercy with the world. That's a time of judgment. It has a culmination in judgment, not a culmination in, you know, experience and patience and hope. So there's again a distinction within this that people forget to notice. Now, am I to rejoice in the Lord always? Well, yeah, yeah. You are to rejoice in the Lord always. There's a shortest verse in the Bible. Is, is anyone even know what it is? Jesus wept. Yeah, not originally, but originally that wasn't the shortest verse in the Bible. Originally it was written in Greek and there's another shortest verse in the Bible. Have a look in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 5. So when the Bible was first written in the Greek language, the shortest verse in the Bible is actually found there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn to it. Consider also the context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, prior to that, chapter 4, speaks to the imminent rapture of the church. That's where we get the phrase rapture is in there, caught up, being caught up to be forever with the Lord. Chapter 5, however, speaks to the day of wrath. And it speaks and it tells the church specifically in verse 9 that God hath not appointed us to wrath. Then it speaks to comfort and to edify each other in verse 11. 
It teaches us how to live in this present time right up until verse 15. And in verse 16 is found the shortest verse in the Bible originally. Rejoice evermore. Thank you. Rejoice evermore. I didn't want that to distract us too much. You know, Rejoice evermore. That is originally the shortest verse in the Bible. Do you need to say anything more to that? I mean, it's a complete phrase. You don't need to add anything to it. You can't take away from it. Rejoice evermore. It is so simple and it's complete in its context. The context is speaking about the coming of the Lord. The context is telling us that we are not appointed unto wrath. And now it tells us to edify and to encourage one another and therefore rejoice evermore. This is a a final commandment to us, to rejoice evermore. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice because the Lord is at hand. Rejoice because you have peace with God. Rejoice even in the daily troubles of life. Rejoice evermore. Philippians knew the state of Paul when he wrote this letter. The Philippians When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, they might have a little bit of an insight that we perhaps take a little bit for granted because they would have known the seriousness of Paul's state when he wrote this letter. They knew that he was in prison when he wrote it. They knew that all his earthly possessions had been removed and they understood that 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 to them gave them a greater appreciation of Paul's words to rejoice in the Lord always. He had everything taken away from him. He had his freedom removed from him. He was now dependent upon the, on the jailers to be able to bring him his daily sustenance. And he had no idea on whether or not he was going to be um, coming out of that too well. One of the things that, um, that we find is that Paul didn't have the burden of earthly riches. He was free from the shackles of this world's freedom. And he was well and truly liberated from the enjoyments of the privileges of this life that can be here today and gone tomorrow. But having food and raiment, he says, he was there with content, 1 Timothy 6, verse 8. Isn't it incredible? I ask you a question, just, just out of curiosity. What can they take away from you when you've got nothing? Can't take away anything from you, can you? Can they? And yet we have riches that are exceedingly abundantly above anything that we can ask or think. So what can they give you when you've got everything? Nothing. So they can take nothing away from you when you've got nothing and they can't give you anything because you've already got everything that you need. You know, Paul understood this. He recognised this. So it didn't matter to him. In whatever state he found himself in, he was there with content. He was content and he could say rejoice evermore. It was in prison that he wrote, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. It's the same chapter, just verse 11. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice and be self-controlled. The Lord is at hand. Something that knowing knowing that the Lord is at hand, knowing that he is even at the door, should in every way provide for us a level of evident self-control. 
There should be a level of evident self-control within our lives. There should be within our lives a continuing evidence of patience, of gentleness, and the text states it perfectly, of moderation. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So go back, backwards in your Bibles. It's the first one after the book of Romans. And before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and chapter 9. And he speaks to those who have been born again and desiring more to grow in the Lord. In verse 25. first part of that says and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things to be to be temperate is the earthly quality of those who seek to be well professional in their endeavors it's a sign of maturity isn't it oh we see that even within the world today people can have the risk of being overtly emotional and go way over the top but when they're if they're in in part of their employments or part of their job they are actually seen as being professional because being professional i'm above those radical emotions that go up and down we behave in a professional manner we we answer things on a level in a level-headed manner we are temperate he says in verse 25 he concludes now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown the professionals do it to be exalted within their employments. But we an incorruptible, he says. I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul writes here about self-control. He writes that... Um, it takes work to maintain that self-control. He resists the temptation to run away with his emotion. He desires moderation and he desires that to be evident and on display for all men. Lest that by any means when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Beloved, we ruin our witness to others if we are seen to be as others. We ruin our witness within the world if we are going to be finding ourselves filled with radical emotions, passions and all that sort of thing, ranting and raving up and down like the craziness of the world. We are to be moderate. We are to be level-headed. And we can do so because the Lord is at hand. We have patience. We have joy. We can rejoice in the Lord and we can rest. None of the troubles that are in this life should carry us away in all these frantic emotions as the world is today. We shouldn't be involved in that with regards to our emotional state. We should be on a very level, even keel. That while the world is going up and down like this, we're sailing and just coasting along. You know? That's the impression that he speaks about here. And that's meant to be an evident witness to the world. The saddest element that we're going to be seeing in the church in the last days is the exact opposite of this. Let's speak about people within the church being without self-control in the last days they'll be lovers of their own selves lovers of pleasures more than lovers of god covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection truce breakers false accusers incontinent 
fierce. Now, the incontinency there refers simply to a lack of self-control, beloved. That's what that refers to, a lack of self-control, an, un, un, an inability to be able to control themselves. Peter refers to it as individuals who are walking after their own lusts. In other words, the moment the emotion rises up in their, in their heads or in their hearts, they're carried away and swept along by their own emotions. Okay, You see that, you've experienced it. You experience it still. We all do. We all do. But we are charged to resist it. We are charged to resist it. We all naturally go this way. Don't, it's not, this isn't telling you something that, oh, you shouldn't be feeling this way at all. No, we do feel this way. But we resist it. And we do so, and we can do so, when we especially remember that the Lord is at hand. That we are to rejoice. We have peace with God. And there's no reason for us to be carried away and swept away with our emotions. Paul writing to Titus to teach Christians to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. The interesting expression brawlers here, um, it was one of the things that I saw within the text of those descriptions for a pastor that was the very last that I could confidently say I'm no longer a brawler. Um, It's not a brawler you know, jumping into physical punch-ons. It's, it's, it's a willingness and a suddenness to get involved in every bit of controversy, to all of a sudden have your two bobs worth spoken about, to put your piece of argument in, to be argumentative all the time. When someone says something about what's going on, I'd have my bit to say and I'd be happy to stir up a little bit of strife. Somebody threw the bait my way, I'd take it. My mother-in-law was brilliant at that. She just had a knack. So, Eddie, what do you think about this and this? Oh, mate, I was right in the fray. And next thing you know, we'd be having an argument, you know. That's a brawler. That's a brawler. It's someone that's looking for an opportunity to continue an argument with someone, you know. That's a brawler. And that was truly the last thing that I that had to be dealt with within my life before I could confidently say with any degree of certainty at all that I am fit for the, for the ministry, for that position. That had to be gone, you know. Does it rise up again? I've got to resist it, yeah. It does rise up, but I've got to resist it, you know. And this is what we are to do. The mind that knows the Lord is at hand with all confidence and all assurance should not be one that is prone to bouts of extremities of emotion or without control of their behaviour. There should be in us all hearts and minds that are at a wonderful rest, a wonderful comfort. No, no, no fear of looking at the days ahead, but showing ourselves moderate to all men, not triggered so quickly by the current affairs of the world. Beloved, the birth pangs of this world should only encourage you that it will soon be delivered. The birth pangs of the world should only encourage you that it will soon be delivered. That's what we should be seeing. And that's, what we should, that's how our minds need to be thinking. The world will soon be delivered of its evil. And therefore we are commanded to rejoice always, knowing that the Lord is at hand. If that's not you, then repent. 
If all you're doing is struggling with the, 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 the birth pangs of this world, then repent. You're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Oh, why? Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. When we have a mind that knows the Lord is at hand, we rejoice always. And we live lives in moderation and rest. Second point this morning is rest and be confident. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6 in our text of Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Be careful for nothing. Careful. It's a wonderful example of the Bible's use of compound words. Um, If you ever want to get into a really interesting study in the Bible, see how it uses compound words. Compound word is simply two words that have independent meanings that are brought together to bring about a meaning that includes both of those words. And we see that within that word, careful. There is a meaning of both involved in that. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. You'll see its employment here. Luke chapter 10. Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha. You remember this. And the text speaks that Mary, or Martha rather, was cumbered about much serving in verse 40. While Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, Martha requests from the Lord that Mary help her and Jesus responds in verse 41. So Luke chapter 10 verse 41. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Here we've got the context. We've got a context for the word careful. It's not, it's not one that relates to taking care. Be careful, okay? Be careful. That's where it had its origin. It had its origin there. But it's associated here with trouble. Trouble about many different things. It's about being full of care. Being full of care. The word careful, how we use it today, did actually have its origin about being full of care. Be full of care before you touch this and this. Be full of care when you go out and you do this and this. But back in those days, it was something that referred to worrying. Worrying. Being full of care. Worrying. Worrying about things. We are not to be full of care because the Lord is at hand. It's the mind that knows the Lord is at hand. Paul, um, King David speaks about this. He says, you know, we often consider ourselves that somehow we've got to worry about tomorrow. And King David says, I have been young and am now old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. I'm young, I'm old. Well, he was young before. I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. The world worries about tomorrow. That should not be our lot. We should not be worried about tomorrow. Jesus makes that clear. He says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You only deal with one evil at a time, one day at a time. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Expand this consideration a little bit more to a point that might be a little bit more contextual when we're speaking about the last days. Daniel chapter 3. There's an event that occurred in the kingdom of Judah and it completely upturned the lives of all its citizens. Completely. 
as a king that came and took the vast majority of the entire population away. Took them to Babylon. He changed their homes. He changed their food. He changed their education. And he even changed their names. Just give a consideration to that for a second. Added to this was his desire to change the object of their worship. That was his desire. In Daniel chapter 3, the friends of Daniel are brought before the king. And he's been told that they were unwilling to prostrate themselves and to worship the golden image that he'd set up. We'll take our reading from verse 13. Daniel 3 verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, do you not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery and dulcimer and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. There was no fear nor worry in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. There was no concern with respect to this. They heard the decree. The decree was given. It was given to all the lands, 120 different provinces from memory is where that decree went out, to peoples far and wide, to people that used to worship other gods. They are now commanded that when they hear the sound of the, of the hornet, the flute, you know, sack button, whatever else kinds of music, they were to fall down and worship the image which Nebuchadnezzar had put up. They'd already worked it out ahead of time. They're not careful, they're not full of care on the matter. They've already predetermined within their minds that they're not going to worship the golden image even to the cost of their lives. And they were going to be thrown alive into a burning, fiery furnace. They knew this. And they determined that whether or not the Lord delivers them, they're not concerned. If the Lord delivers them, he delivers them. If he doesn't deliver them, understand that I'm not, we're not going to be doing this. If it be so, whom our God we serve is able to deliver us, he is able from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, be known unto the king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image. They knew the Lord and they were completely at rest even unto death. Job was the one who said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. Be careful for nothing. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. This is the mind that knows the Lord is at hand. We are to be careful. We are to be full of care for nothing, not even our own lives. In everything, yet in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known unto God. This is a wonderful, joyful confidence that we have in the Lord. We rejoice always. We are without worry. We are without fear. We are living in moderation and gentleness to all people. And by prayer and supplication, we make our requests known to God. Who is it in this world that can ever have such confidence as this? There's only one people group that can ever have this sort of confidence. And that's you who know the Lord. Only you can have this sort of confidence. Nobody else can have this sort of confidence. Nobody else can live life on an even keel as we can. Only, only we can live this way. Think about this for a second. During the time of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, there were 120 different provinces. There were people from other lands and other cultures. They had their own gods. Do you think they wanted to fall down and worship the God of Nebuchadnezzar? I've got my doubts. I've got my doubts. I don't think that they actually wanted to. I think that they were forced to do this against their own will. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar gave them the conditions. He said, if you won't, you're going to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. That's okay. So which would you prefer? He's given them a choice, right? So I think most of these people didn't want to do this. And yet, they found themselves doing exactly that. There are people I know today who have succumbed to doing things against their will simply for fear of losing their jobs. How willingly will they bow the knee to a false image for fear of losing their lives? Only those who know the Lord don't have that fear. Only those who know the Lord don't need to feel compelled to do things that are completely against the faith of the Lord and the trusting in the Lord. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the mind that always rejoices. This is the life that is seen as temperate, gentle, moderate in all things. The mind free from worry, careful for nothing. And in the place of these anxieties, we, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known unto God. And he hears and we are confident that whether or not he answers prayer according to what our prayers were, we know that he hears and that he has heard our cry and we can rest. Trust and be assured the Lord is at hand. Our third point this morning, verse 7, says there, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There are, um, there are many people troubled today just as there has been in years gone by um, there are times where where fears abound in life and that troubles uh, would come and oftentimes just the thought of those fears can overwhelm someone it, it wasn't it wasn't really long ago it might have been about a year ago um, I I went through just this really short period of time where, where I was suffering with some really serious anxieties. I, I can't remember if it, even if I, if I shared that with Maria. Um, but I was, I was very mindful that um, if I live long enough, I'm, I'm going to experience a certain degree of guilt, grief in my life. I've got a, I've got a, a wife who I completely love and I've got children who I absolutely adore 
and I have a church family and I have relatives that I completely love and don't ever want to be without. And yet I was intuitively aware that as my life goes on, I am going to experience severe grief. And it created in me an anxiety, a level of anxiety that I'd never experienced before. It gripped me. It really gripped me. It really took my heart. And it was... It was uh, look, only those... I didn't realise it at the time. I did realise it. I, I knew that I was actually experiencing what's commonly known as an anxiety attack. And, uh, and it wasn't that long ago. Like I said, it would have been about a year ago, you know. And it's debilitating, you know. I've had them before, very, very infrequently, but I had that then and it really gripped my heart. And it wasn't until I, I turned back, I, I, I just picked up the Bible and started reading it that it pretty much left as quickly as it came. But, um, but it's hard to mistake it. It's hard to forget it when it comes. As a Christian, that's not an experience that should be common for us. It doesn't mean that it won't happen. It doesn't mean that it won't happen. But it's not an experience that should be common. There needs to be... We can't help these things when they come up within our lives, but there is a check on them, and they are to remember whose we are. Remember the peace that we have in the Lord. Remember that it's in Him that we have our confidence and our trust, and He is the one that the peace of God provides that passes all understanding. It's what keeps our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. It's the peace that passes all understanding. And those of you who have experienced grief recognize this. They see this. They've known it. They've experienced the grief. They've experienced the trauma that's happened within their lives. And yet somehow it's the Lord that carries them through. Now we have the Lord. See, we experience this. We love this. Because God is the one that keeps our hearts. And he keeps our minds. He keeps us stable. He keeps us strong. Not so for the world. Not so for the world. This is a thing that we find within the world that is completely opposite to this. The world doesn't have this. And many remain overwhelmed. And only prescription offered that they have offered to them is drugs and these drugs are in all their different forms in all their different forms some of them prescribed some of them illicit some of them are a physical thing some of them are an activity let me give you some statistics a third of american employees suffer with chronic debilitating stress more than half the millennial population suffer with it that's the ages from 18 to 33 well, at the time that this study was put forward, um, it'd be you know from yeah from in their in their early twenties into their mid thirties. The National Center of Health Statistics report in two thousand eleven states that eleven percent of all Americans aged twelve and above take antidepressants. Did you get that? Eleven percent of all Americans aged above the age of twelve take antidepressants. Almost a quarter of women aged in their 40s and 50s are clinically depressed or on antidepressants. A recent study in 2017 showed 60 million adults, that's 28% of the population of the United States, suffer with alcoholism. 24 million on other illicit drugs such as marijuana, cocaine and heroin and methamphetamines. 
In 2013, the National Survey on Drug on drug use reports that a further 24 million people are using illicit drugs. When you add all of that together, when you add the antidepressants, the stimulants and those that are addicted to alcohol and, and illicit drugs alone, you're speaking about well over 100 million people in the United States. That's nearly a third of the entire population. Americans dependent on toxic substances to get through life is one-third of their entire population. That's just to get through life. And that's the ones that are on substances. This is not including those who are addicted to other forms of vice, and gambling and pornography and, and addictive other behaviours, adrenaline fixes and all that sort of thing. That continues on. There are 85% of young men and over 50% of women that are addicted to pornography in the United States. But this isn't limited to America. The problems are a lot worse in Europe. A study in 2011 shows 38% of Europeans are suffering with mental illness in one form or another. 38% of Europeans are mentally ill. Some of you wouldn't surprise you. But I shouldn't laugh because the same statistics can be reflected here in Australia. The study's author said that mental disorders have become Europe's largest health challenge of the 21st century. The study covered 30 different countries and over 514 million people. 165 million people in Europe suffering with mental disorders. The World Health Organization said that depression alone will be the second largest contributor to the global burden of disease across all ages. And that's about four years old. I'd leave it up to you to consider whether or not those numbers have arisen in the last 12 months. All this just to get through life. Does it mean that we don't have problems? No. But we deal with it patiently, waiting for the Lord. We have joy and we rejoice in the Lord. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, after the book of Hebrews, we'll find the book of James. James chapter 5 and verse 7. As we look at this, you want to consider also the context again. James chapter 5 verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Be patient, beloved. You have seen the example of the prophets of old who suffered affliction for their faith and what they... And yet we count them happy that endured, he says. He speaks about the patience of Job. All of you remember what he lost. He lost everything. I mean, those, those first 
32 chapters, he speaks about it time and time and time again. You know, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. And yet all this come, come upon me. I lost all my goods. I lost all my possessions. I lost all my children. Kept my wife and three friends. And yet we see the end of the matter. We see the end of the matter. That God had blessed him with twice as much as everything that he had before. What a wonderful blessing. We have a greater assurance of Christ than even Job did of the Lord. We know and we can rejoice that the Lord is nigh. He is near. He's coming. And he's coming at any time and we are to rejoice. This is the mind that knows the Lord is at hand. That's the mind. And that's the mind that you want to retain and maintain. Last point this morning as we conclude this passage from uh, in verse 8. The mind that knows the Lord is at hand. Have a look at how the mind thinks and what should be a part of their habit. Verse 8 in our text. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. There's a natural tendency of the mind to wander toward things that are not edifying, not encouraging. Even when we have no external influences, we, our minds seem to slip into a negative territory a lot of the time. When we think about nothing, we think that we're thinking about nothing and yet we're not thinking about nothing. Something else is going on within our, within our minds. There is a conforming work of the world to conform us into the image of the world and the image of the world is not a good one. We just had a look, you know, we've got a third of the planet at least is suffering depression. You don't want to be conformed to that. And yet, that's the natural state of the flesh. We will naturally slip into those areas. That's not just, that's not right, that's not good. We've got to do an active thing. And what is that active thing? We need to turn our thoughts away from those things and turn to those things that Paul speaks about here. Without any influence of the Word of God to redirect our minds we are going to find ourselves thinking about something that is impure, spiteful, sinful, even of condemning others. We need to have our minds redirected. There's a natural state of the mind, a tendency of the natural world to decay from order to disorder. And eventually it will lead to our temporal ruin. We are not to do so. This is the natural tendency of of fallen man in Romans chapter 1, this shouldn't be ours. Ours should be to continue to strive towards those things that are of the Lord. And it takes effort. It takes effort. It takes conscious effort to do this. Remember, the natural tendency is one towards negativity. It's one of depravity. It's one that, that falls. That's a natural tendency. But it takes effort to change that about, to make that different. We need to take great care, beloved, of the things that you permit to enter into your minds. Take care of what you see. Take care of what you hear. Take care of what you're thinking on. That it lines itself well to that noted by Paul. Keith Richards is the old lead guitarist of the Rolling Stones who seems to defy gravity at the age of 78. Um, everybody would have figured he should have been dead by now. You know, he uh, in an interview 
in an interview, he acknowledged the permanent effect of music on the mind. And he says, once it goes into your ears, there's nothing you can do about it. And he wasn't speaking about it positively. He was speaking about it negatively. The good news is you have control over this. You have control over this. You've got an on-off switch. You've got one. You can turn notifications off on your phone. You can turn them off. You can get out of groups that aren't gratifying to the mind and are not pertaining to the things that Paul speaks about here. Get out of those groups. You don't have to stay there. Get out. I've got a news flash for you. The world's not going to get any better if that's what you're looking for. It's not. So get out of those groups. If they're not gratifying to you within, if they're not encouraging you, if they're not endeavouring you towards the Lord, if they're not encouraging you to do what you're commanded to do, and that is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, get out, switch the notifications off. You can always go back to it later if you want to, but stay away from them. Delete the apps. You can do that. You've got the opportunity. Guess what, you can, guess what else you can do? Just as a side, you can turn off the time vaporizer. It's the TV. You can turn the time vaporizer off. You can even get it out of of your house if you want to. There's no harm in that whatsoever. No harm in that. Each time you switch on the entertainments, I want you to hear a tremendous sucking sound. It's sucking your mind and drawing you into the vacuum of a broken, hopeless world. That's what it's doing, all right? I might, I might see if I can develop an app on your phones. Every time you go onto YouTube, you hear the... You know? Every time you get on Netflix, you hear the same thing, this, this sucking sound, your mind getting drawn into this vacuum. I really do. I really hope you hear that. I, I hope this actually resonates within your mind, even just remembering this sermon. Every time Netflix is on, on this other app, and in the, in the next one, you hear that sucking sound. That's your mind getting drawn in. You're being conformed to this world. And those of you who think that you're only watching the news <laughs> to be informed, Christian or secular, you are not. You are not. You are not only being informed. You are being conformed. You are being conformed. You are the advertising material for huge corporations. And the only material that you are going to see are those that will drive you into one direction or another. You are being manipulated through algorithms. If you've never done a study on that, there's heaps of books out there that will reveal to you the true nature of every single app that you've got in your phone. You are being manipulated, you are being conned, you are being conformed to this world. Just, please. Yet in place of this, Paul writes to ensure that we tend our minds actively to whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things. There are far too many people who tend toward the opposite of these things and the result of that can be devastating. They lose the encouragement of the heart, they lose the joy of the spirit, the confidence of the life and the peace of the soul. It disappears. 
it disappears and it's heartbreaking to see. And I see it all the time. I see it all the time. The mind that knows the Lord is at hand is the mind that is continually enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that ye come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are enriched by him and we have need of nothing. We come behind in no gift as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first century church had their dominating consideration on the imminent return of the Lord. We see this as we read the concerns of Paul to them, both in the first Thessalonian letter as well as into the second one. We see the first century church had its thought and its mind on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment. We see it in many different epistles, speaking about the coming of the Lord drawing nigh. And it doesn't speak about it negatively in these epistles, unless it's dealing with a particular event. There's no point filling our minds with the madness of the world. There's no point filling our hearts with the anxieties of the world. We are here to demonstrate hope to the world. That's what we're here to do. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, But sanctify the Lord your God. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. If you can understand anything about the dispensational aspect of Scripture, you'll recognise that Peter's writings is a writing that sort of set itself in the last of the last days. So there's a recognition of tremendous turmoil. And yet we are to demonstrate hope. But how can you do this if what dominates your day are the godless motions of a sinking world? The dishonest, the unjust, the impure and disgusting. Whatsoever things are of evil report... And if there be any sin and if there be any disdain, should not compete against whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, and if there be any virtue and if there be any praise. These are the things, if these are the things that are dominating most of your time, then I ask and I plead with you to repent. And I'm not, I'm not speaking to you as a... I just want you to get a, just an understanding of this. I'm not speaking to you here as a man that has never indulged these things. I've spent the better part of 20 years doing it. I've spent the better part of 20 years... My children can testify, can't you? Speaking about all the stuff that's going on in the world and all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. I've spent the better part of 20 years recognising this. And there are many people who are only just catching up now and they're, and they're getting a little bit overwhelmed by it. It's too late. It's gone. You can't change anything. The world's heading on its own particular course. And there's no point filling your minds and filling your hearts and depressing yourself and your family as a result of it. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice evermore. Please don't continue to sin in this manner. One of the things that you can't do and you can't begin to rejoice in the Lord and that is if you're still lost. If you don't know Christ, you can't rejoice in him. If you're not born again, you can't rejoice in him. He came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's you. He came to seek and to save you that you might have hope of everlasting life, that you would have peace with God 
and that you would have in every way a peace that passes all understanding, that every day you can indeed rejoice evermore, that your moderation can be shown to all men, that your calm demeanour and that your present stable state becomes a witness to all people who will ask you of the hope that is in you. That can be you if you don't know Christ now. And all it takes is for you to admit that you are a sinner before a holy God, to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that your sins are washed away through his blood and his blood alone and that you would call upon his name simply call upon his name ask him to save you and if you're not convinced that he has then call on him again and if you're still not convinced then call on him again you knock and you knock and you knock until it is answered you continue to call upon the name of the lord until you are confident that He has indeed saved you. And it's the heart that needs to believe. Not the head. The heart needs to believe. But if you are saved, and Paul reminds you from the doors of his prison cell that your rejoicing has its source in a mind that knows the Lord is at hand. To you who know Christ, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. You already have the victory. You already have it. And you are more than conquerors. And the battle has already been won for you and you rest in the glory of the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, as we see the incredible contrasts and the scriptures come alive with respect to your return for your church. We see them come alive, dear Lord, and we see the rejoicing call. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we wait, we wait patiently, watching, every day watching, every moment expecting, and every part of our work, dear Lord, enduring, and desiring to please our Saviour when he comes, that we might be found working for you as the husbandman who comes to receive that which the fruits of his vineyard. I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would be a blessing to all those who are here and that they will in every way glorify you through their lives and that they would be blessed, rejoicing every day in the coming of the Lord, that he may come indeed, even now. I ask you, dear Lord, watch over My brethren, bless us, dear Father, and if you should in any way tarry, dear Lord, I pray that you would bring us together again, that we may glorify you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.